Hey, deserving listeners, this is part two in my avoidant personality disorder deep dive. If you haven't heard part one yet, I recommend doing that. And if you have uh, heard part one, then welcome, patron. You're awesome. Let's get to it. Let's talk about schemas. If you're interested in learning more about schemas, you can listen to my previous episodes on schema therapy and other episodes in which I interviewed people about their own schemas. I'm planning on probably doing reruns of all the schema episodes at some point this summer. Maybe one week where that's all I do is replay all those schema episodes in a row. And those are also, I believe, for patrons only as well. But in brief, schemas are uh, – it's schema therapy developed by Young in 2003-ish times in the 90s. Basically, it starts – and it's a model that I use even though I didn't know I was using schema therapy. I didn't really know schema therapy until last year or even – I don't even – not that long ago. And I had basically – it's basically a variation on psychodynamic and cognitive therapy and anyway. So the basics are that we have core emotional needs that need to be sufficiently met during our childhood. Makes sense, right? But schema therapy tries to codify these different needs and develop ways in which describing in which the conditions at which we develop when those needs aren't met. Uh, My words aren't coming out right, but I hope you get what I'm saying. Now, I adapted the core needs into my own language. So this is my version of all of our core needs growing up, and there are eight of them. One is secure attachments, love, attention, attunement, empathy, nurturing, validation of feelings and needs. So this is all the good things, warmth, empathy, security, love, you know, warm hugs, telling your child that they matter, making your child feel heard and understood, paying attention to your kid, all that kind of stuff. So that's number one. That's a very core emotional need that every child has. Two, safety, stability, and predictability. So the opposite of this is abuse and chaos where kids can't predict their future and they don't feel safe. Number three is a sense of identity. Who are they? That has to do with the development of self, right? They have to develop a self to know that who they are. But also parenting that allows a child to develop a sense of identity. Oh, you're more of an Elsa instead of an Anna. Or, oh, you're more of a Luke instead of a Han. Or you're a fast runner. Or you are smart and nice to people. A sense of who we are. We need that need because we all have that need to be like, who am I in, in relation to other people? Number four is a freedom to express needs and emotions spontaneous expression of emotions and thoughts, play, creativity, and having other people accept it. So this has to do with just essentially spontaneousness. We all have a need throughout our lives for freedom of expression, freedom of spontaneity. When you feel joy and you want to laugh, we have a need to be able to express that and to have people accept it. We have a need to draw pictures and do whatever is on our mind and have people accept it. We have a need to do a little dance when we're four or 24 24, 
And we need people to not shun us for doing what we feel is what we need to do in that moment. Or freedom to express our needs, like, hey, I need a hamburger right now, or I need a hug, or I need you to step back. We all have that need of spontaneous connection with who we are and what we want and being able to express it. That's a core emotional need that every kid needs to be satisfied sufficiently. Number five is a need for autonomy and competence, a need to feel like you're good at things and that you can do things on your own. Number six is a need for acceptance and praise, that I'm a good enough human being, that my, my, the core of who I am is good enough and acceptable and praiseable by other people. Number seven is realistic limits and self-control. This is something that's often not listed in these kinds of lists. Every kid needs to learn that they need to control their impulses at times and that there are rational limits to their behavior. Some kids are raised without having that need met, and we see a result of that, psychopathy one. And number eight is guidance and mentoring. So this is as we head into our own autonomy and making our own choices, that someone's there to guide us and mentor us, that they don't just simply say, yeah, you're great, you're on your own, go ahead and go ahead and make your own life, that they're actually still alongside you, guiding you. And that can happen at the age of two or three as the kid is going into daycare or a playground or something, or you're 23 and you're going into grad school and someone is there to mentor you. Throughout my life, I've had a number of mentors helping me with my career. So those are my version of eight core emotional needs that we all have. And if these needs are not meant, met in childhood, then we develop what we call schemas. These are schemas are somewhat fixed in the way that we see the world. They're basically personality traits. So let's give an example. So let's say that the first one, the first need of the need for love and attention is not met when you're a child. And you develop this notion that I must not be lovable. So that's a schema. That is a schema of seeing the world. It's a fixed personality trait in which you observe the world. I'm not getting my need met. Why is that? Well, I must not be lovable. That must be why I'm not getting love. And that is now a fact that I operate by. I am not lovable. Now, the opposite is true. When you give people enough love and attention, then they have a schema that they are lovable. So schemas aren't always negative in my definition. So in the schema language, schema therapy language, they call this the defectiveness shame schema. There are 18 different schemas. There are 18 different maladaptive schemas. And th this sort of schema, and these are my way, this is my way of describing it, but People will agree with the following statements if they have the schema. And some of you out there have the schema because you've talked with me about this. You might agree with any of the four following statements. I am not really lovable. If you agree with that statement, sort of, you might have this maladaptive schema. No one could really love me once they saw the real me. People close to me often harshly criticize me. I'm terrified that my defects will be exposed. So if any of those four are agreeable or you agree with any of those four to you, 
then you might have what schema therapy would call the defectiveness shame schema, which was a result of not getting enough love and attention or something, some of one of those eight needs that you needed, you know, maybe your sense of safety wasn't really met or your freedom to express your needs or your autonomy or your need for acceptance or praise or whatever, maybe all of those needs weren't met. And that led to you developing this schema, this belief system, this fact, you, you believe it's fact. Yeah, it's fact. I am defective and shameful because why else would I be treated this way? And that guides one's behavior in life, that guides your defenses, it guides your interactions, it guides everything moving forward in life. And schema therapy tries to correct for those schemas. And I'm going to go into all, uh, all the schemas that are involved in avoidant personality disorder, of which there are many. So the whole point here is that these maladaptive schemas are very painful, and we need a way of coping with them. So it's painful not to get your needs met, and then you develop this maladaptive schema that says, oh, it's not them. It just must be me. I, I must be not lovable. Well, if you're walking around with this notion that you're not lovable, it's this fixed sort of belief system about who you are, you have to have ways of coping with that in the world to sort of mitigate further damage. So again, looking to this example, lack of love results in I am defective as a schema. Well, there are three different categories that people will uh, cope with this schema of I am defective. They either surrender to it, they either overcompensate, overcompensate or they avoid it. So with the I am defective schema, if someone surrenders to it, they might just be like, yep, you know what? It's true. I am defective and I'm a terrible person. And whenever I get a chance, I'm going to put myself down. I'll self-sabotage myself. I'll surround myself with critical people who confirm the fact that I am defective. So that's surrendering to it. There's a certain relief to surrendering to a schema like that. It's just like, I give up. Why fight it? Yep, I'm defective. Might as well go along with it. Another coping style, and we could see how surrendering to it could be a problem, right? Because it's just like giving in. The other uh, uh, coping style, maladaptive coping, is to overcompensate. And this is to say, F you, I'm not defective. Everyone else is defective. And so you might be arrogant and criticize other people. But deep down, you believe you're defective. And this obviously doesn't help because you're criticizing other people. The third and last style of any schema is avoidance. And the way people might avoid the I am defective schema is to avoid relationships and avoid, and avoid expressing your thoughts and feelings. Because if you avoid expressing yourself, if you avoid relationships, then you don't have to continually come up against the notion that you're defective because you're, you're only defective in other people's eyes, so to speak. Or not, well, it only becomes the notion of being defective becomes much more acute in relationships with other people, if that makes any sense. So if I avoid relationships, <clears throat> then I don't have to think about the fact as often that I'm defective. Okay. So that is. You, so you, we have those three steps. You have the core emotional need that you have as a child. And if that isn't met, you will develop a schema that will explain why you're not getting that need met. 
But that schema is maladaptive and it causes lots of problems, internal strife. And so you have to develop a way of coping with that negative schema. And those coping mechanisms often are maladaptive and will deny us getting our needs met. Because if you avoid relationships, then you're not going to get any love and attention, right? Okay. So research by a number of different researchers has looked into what schemas are associated with avoidant personality disorder. And what they found was that there were a lot of schemas associated with avoidant personality disorder, which makes sense because when you have a personality disorder, usually it involves a lot of, a lot of needs not being met and a lot of negative, negative schemas being developed. So the, as I said, there are 18 different schemas, and the research has found that 10 or 11, I think 11 of the 18 have been found to be associated with avoidant personality disorder. So let's get into it. So the first one is abandonment, and uh, this is uh, one of the uh, schemas that they find to be associated with avoidant personality disorder. So when they, they, pe- they take people who are uh, you know, diagnosed with avoidant personality disorder and they give them different surveys to figure out what schemas they have, and they have been found, a lot of them, not always, to have abandonment schema, which means that they agree with the following statements. And these are my statements that I've developed on my own measure to try to determine people's schemas. So they will agree with some or most of these statements. I feel lonely. I worry that people I feel close to will leave me or abandon me. I feel that I lack a stable emotional support from others. I expect close relationships to end. So that makes a lot of sense, right? We've been talking about avoidant personality disorder. They feel lonely. They feel people are going to leave them because they're going to criticize them. They expect close relationships to end because they believe that they will be awkward or weird or wrong in some way that people will leave them. Okay. So if you have that abandonment schema and you're like, I am abandonable or people are going to abandon me, I'm abandonable and people are going to abandon me. That's just going to happen. It's just a a matter of time. That is a frequent thing that people with avoidant personality disorder will say. Well, we have three different styles of coping with that. We have the surrender, overcompensate, and avoidance. So to surrender would be to select partners who cannot make a commitment or to ignore or make excuses for your partner's lack of stability or commitment. So that's just saying, I surrender. People are going to abandon me and... I guess that's just the way it's going to be. And I'll look for people to abandon me who are, you know, likely to abandon me and then they will just abandon me. And that, that's just the way it's going to happen. So that's giving in to the abandonment. The other style is to overcompensate. And this is when people will cling to other people. They'll say, no, 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 no one will abandon me. And I will GD make sure that no one abandons me. And so as soon as someone is starting to move away from me, I'm going to cling to them and attack them and say, no, you will not abandon me. And that obviously doesn't work either. The third style is avoidance. And this is when you just avoid relationships. And you also deny your own need for closeness. So this is avoiding your abandonment schema. You're avoiding your deep held belief that you're going to be abandoned by just avoiding relationships altogether and also just denying that you even need to have relationships. So 
that is the one that avoidant personality disorder people will pick. They will tend not to surrender very often. They will tend not to overcompensate. They will tend to avoid. It's all in the title of the disorder. So that is abandonment schema. The next schema is mistrust and abuse. This is also associated through research on avoidant personality disorder. So in this uh, schema, children are lacking in security, love, safety, and acceptance, and the child, or they're being abused, and the child is basically developing a schema, you know, I can't trust other people and or they're going to abuse me. So the things that they might agree with are the following. It's hard for me to trust others. I need solid proof before I can trust someone. So that's very akin to avoidant personality. I sometimes test others to make sure they can be trusted. I often feel that I have to protect myself from others because they are likely to hurt me. It's only a matter of time before someone betrays me. Most people are selfish or fake and only think about themselves. I sometimes will hurt others before they can hurt me. I can tell you a number of stories of people who have mistreated me. So people with avoidant personality disorder will agree with at least some of those statements. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that sounds like borderline. So it all depends on the constellation of schemas that will determine whether, because avoidant personality disorder is actually akin to borderline in that both will assume that other people are going to hurt them. And both have, but they have different ways of, of coping with it. One avoids relationships while the other one pursues, which is akin to avoid attachment and preoccupied attachment. Not always. Anyway, so when you have a schema, a belief system that other people are going to abuse you eventually or other people are just going to hurt you, They're, other people are dangerous, you can surrender, overcompensate, or avoid. And to avoid is to avoid relationships to avoid being vulnerable in relationships, to deny your own need for closeness, and to say, you know what, I'm going to wait for others to clearly indicate that they like me before I open up to them. All right, the third schema that is associated through research findings with avoidant personality disorder is emotional deprivation. So this is when you feel like people aren't giving you enough emotional love and empathy. And the following statements they might agree with. Generally speaking, no one has ever really been there to meet my emotional needs. I haven't gotten enough love and nurturance from others. I've never had a consistent person to depend on for advice or emotional support. For most of my life, I have not had someone who really cares to listen or understand me. For most of my life, I've not had someone who really cares about me. So again, surrender, overcompensate, avoid. Well, the avoidant style is, again, to avoid relationships and to, and to deny one's needs for closeness. And that's what avoidant personality disorder people will do. So it's not just the schema that determines the personality disorder, but the way you cope with the schema. All right, the next one is defectiveness and shame. We talked about this earlier. So this is the schema in which people will say, you know what, there's something wrong with me. If people got to know me, they would realize they don't like to be with me anymore and I have to hide my true self, that kind of thing. So we have surrender, overcompensate, and avoid. Well, with this one, avoidant personality disorder, people will surrender and avoid. So let's look at surrendering. 
So to surrender to the notion that you're defective is to select critical people in your life and to put yourself down, to self-sabotage, to be preoccupied with being criticized, to be like, yep, I'm going to be criticized. It's just going to happen. It's just a matter of time. And oh my God, that's just going to happen. And so you'll hear avoidant personality disorder people surrendering to this notion sometimes. Not always, but they'll often do that. They'll just assume and they'll be hypervigilant about it. The other style is to avoid. Again, just avoid relationships. Avoid expressing true thoughts and feelings because then no one can really criticize you. And again, deny your need for closeness because if you get close to people, you open yourself up to criticism. The next schema is social isolation. This is a schema in which people believe that they don't belong, that they're fundamentally different from others, that, they're, that they deserve to be alienated, and that they feel like they're the outside of groups. And here again, we see avoidant personality disorder people will both choose surrender and avoidance. So to surrender would be to give in to the notion that you're different from others and just say, yep, I'm awkward, I'm weird, that's just the way that it is. And also assume that everyone notices that you don't belong. So this is surrendering to the notion of that's not true, right? To avoid is, again, to avoid relationships, avoid groups, stay home, and to deny one's need for affiliation with a group. Another schema involved through research findings with avoidant personality disorder is dependence and incompetence. So this schema involves the deep belief that one is not capable that you can't really do things on your own and you need other people to guide you. Now, to cope with this, like I am incompetent schema is through avoidance. Avoid new challenges, avoid risks, avoid being asked to take on new challenges, avoid anything in which you might make a mistake, essentially. Another schema is vulnerability. This schema is the belief, deep belief, that you are vulnerable to things, that you're pretty much in a constant state of vulnerability, that the world is a dangerous place, that something bad is going to happen. Like one of the items that people will often agree with is, I often have the feeling that something bad is about to happen. Some people have this schema, and I don't have the schema. And I always find it interesting when I hear from other people, I think Alberto might have this schema, that they pretty much live in a constant state of like something bad is going to happen. It's just right around the corner. And that has to do with early experiences. If you aren't given safety and stability and predictability when you're young, then and things bad things did randomly happen to you at an early age, then you just have this belief system that bad things happen and I'm completely out of control about that and they happen with great frequency. So people with avoidant personality disorder have this schema uh, usually, not always. And the way of coping with it is to surrender and avoid. And so to surrender to it is to be hypervigilant <clears throat> to danger, particularly social danger, right? So I'm guessing most avoidant personality disorder people experienced vulnerability socially. To avoid is to avoid risks and stay home. I'm not, I can't be vulnerable if I cocoon myself in my bedroom. Another schema involved in Avoidant personality disorder is failure. So this is similar to the incompetent schema, but it basically means I'm, I am a failure. I always will be a failure. I will never accomplish as much as other people. So to surrender to this is to self-sabotage and fail. 
And this is what a lot of avoidant personality disorder people will do. To avoid, which they will also do, is again to avoid challenges, avoid risks, procrastinate, this kind of thing. If I never do anything, then I can never fail at doing anything. Another schema here is subjugation. So this is a situation in which, as a child, you're denied a sense of self. You're made to feel like you're not competent. Maybe you were made to feel like you couldn't be very spontaneous, this kind of thing. And basically, you learn that you are underneath other people. You don't have as much power. And you don't deserve power. So you are powerless, essentially. So people with this schema will believe that, you know what, if I assert myself, something bad is going to happen. And if I'm in a relationship, you know what, it's just safer to let the other person make the decisions. And you know what, sometimes I don't even know what I really want. And it's better to be a people pleaser than not, these kinds of things. So you can surrender to this. Avoidant personality disorder people will surrender this by pleasing other people, but resenting it. You can also avoid this, avoid bumping up against the subjugation schema by avoiding relationships altogether. Or if you're in a relationship, avoid conflict and avoid you know, potentially conflicting interactions with other people. The last schema here is emotional inhibition. So if you... As a child, when you express your emotions are not attuned to or at worst abused, then you will have a schema of emotional inhibition, which means that you believe that your emotions are not to be expressed openly, even positive emotions, that you need to clamp down on your emotions because expressing yourself emotionally leads to bad things embarrassment, abuse, humiliation, ridicule, something like that. So I got to constantly clamp down on my emotions. And I was so stupid for expressing my emotions earlier. You know, I shouldn't have done that. So to surrender to that maladaptive schema is to maintain a calm demeanor to just, okay, you're right, world. I need to inhibit myself. To avoid is to avoid interactions with other people because you, then you don't risk uh, expressing your emotions in front of other people. You might avoid people or situations that involve having to be spontaneous or emotionally expressive, like you know, improv, for example. People with avoidant personality disorder probably wouldn't want to do improv because that would be spontaneous. I mean, not always. It depends on how they see it. But another way to avoid is to never express an emotion first to only express an emotion after other people express the emotion. So if you're at a football game and something awesome happens and you're waiting and the person you went to the game starts to cheer, then you start to cheer. So you only do it after someone else does it. That's a way of sort of avoiding bumping into that schema. So those are the 11 schemas that through research have been found to be associated. And those studies are Taylor et al. 2004, Ball, Cicero, 2001, Jovev and Jackson, 2004, Meyer and Carver, 2000, Reeves and Taylor, 2007, Bernstein, 2002. Okay, so we've talked about the description of it. We've talked about the causes, about temperament, but mainly childhood experiences that result in schemas that result in ways of coping with those schemas. If you have underlying beliefs that 
you're going to be abandoned or that you can't trust other people, that you're going to be emotionally deprived, that people aren't going to love you, that there's something wrong with you. If you've been made to feel like you don't deserve to be a part of a group, that the society doesn't like you or people don't like you, that you're not good enough, that you can't do things on your own, that the world is a scary place and you're going to fail and you need to subjugate yourself to other people to survive and you shouldn't express your emotions. If you were given a childhood experience that resulted in all that, one coping style with that is what we call avoidant personality disorder. Personality disorders are just temporary coping styles that a child uh, uh, resorts to that become solidified because of how early the coping style was adopted. If, for example, you threw me as a 49-year-old person into a situation in which I needed to adopt an avoidant style, it wouldn't stick because I'm 49 and I have a personality that has and, a, and schemas that have been developed early in life that counteract what's happening to me at the age of 49. But to a two-year-old, that's all they know. And so they're very, they're like a sponge in a lot of ways in which it's like, okay, this is the way the world works. My brain is particularly plastic in this moment. I need to develop some, some habits to get by in the world. And whatever habits they develop at the age of two and three will become fairly fixed. And so if you're taught at the age of two and three that the world is unsafe, that people are going to ridicule you, that you're not a good enough person, that you're ridiculable and you're, you're rejectable, then those things become fixed. And then throughout the rest of life, you're constantly having to cope with those notions that keep coming up. And so let's, now that we understand that, we have a good idea about that. Let's go back into describing what it's like now that we've, because um, again, we described what it's like. Now we go to cause. Now we're going to go back. But in this time, I'm going to talk about just one particular study. Uh, Sorensen et al. in 2018, they did a pretty exhaustive a qualitative study looking at people with avoidant personality disorder to look for themes. What are the what are the themes of their lived experience? This is similar to my dissertation, which was a phenomenological study, trying to look for themes of what it feels like. What it, what's the lived experience of this group of people? These people with avoidant personality disorder. So there are a number of different experiences. So the first theme that they found, Sorensen et al., 2018, was fear and longing. Not fear and loathing, but fear and longing, meaning that all the participants, all the people that they talked to with avoidant personality disorder, they longed for close relationship, and they longed to be part of a group. They built up an impression of ideals for social behavior that they perceived as impossible to live up to. They tried to act as if they were normal while simultaneously hiding their perceived shortcomings. Participants used words such as putting on a mask and following the templates of behaving as opposed to being the real me or the sick me. The participants described attempting to act as if they were happy, content, strong, or competent, even though they didn't feel that way. And this pretense was described as difficult and draining to uphold. All the participants described hours of preparing for social engagements, imagining what would likely take place during the social engagements, planning on how to converse and behave and so on. 
A few situations were viewed as easier than others. For some participants, settings with only a few familiar and well-known persons, such as spending time with childhood friends or close family, were more comfortable. Here, it was more possible to observe interactions and predict what might occur. Others found situations in which nobody really knew each other, such as the first days of school, more manageable since they made it more normal to be a bit insecure and confused. So if you didn't catch this, for some people, they're like, not all all social situations are scary for me. Uh, If I'm with my very close family members or friends, then I feel mostly okay. Or if it's the first day of school, no one knows each other, and so we're all expected to be quiet and awkward. And so in those situations, I feel more at ease. Um, They had few, if any, experiences with feelings of being truly seen by another person. One participant said, nobody knows me, and I have never felt seen by anybody. My mother didn't even know me. So I just want to say that again. Just imagine that. No one knows me, and I've never been seen by anybody. My mother didn't even know me. So that points to that schema of I need to not reveal my real self to other people and or a lack of self because you don't, you don't even know who you are to begin with because of the mistreatment growing up. Some of the participants had attempted to communicate their difficulties with a friend or someone in their family about their issue. Most often, they concluded that the other person did not understand them, failed to take them seriously, or reacted by expressing his or her concern. So these people are saying that they actually tried to say, you know what, I get, I get real nervous socially. And those interactions most often did not go well for them. However, for some of the participants, a few relationships contained a sense of close connection. Those who had small children or animals described these connections as genuine and true. However, participants whose children were older described a growing distance in their relationship with them. So for some people with avoidant personality disorder, young children, they don't feel like they have to perform in front of because the kids are very needy of them as parents and animals, right? But as the child grows up and becomes more aware of awkwardness, then the relationship becomes more strained sometimes. Okay, so that's fear and longing. That's one theme. So you have fear of being rejected and longing for connection. That's a theme with people with avoidant personality disorder. Number two is dreading to get close. So for these people, fearing they fear what might happen to them if they were to be exposed. Other people are viewed with great suspicion by all the participants in this study. Their observations of, of overt behavior did not seem associated with inferred trustworthy information regarding other people's inner lives. In other words, that when they observed people's behavior, they always interpreted it in this negative way, like those people are thinking bad thoughts about me. They suspected that people would view them as unlikable. They feared that others could not be dishonest. uh, Sorry. They feared that others could be dishonest, fool them, be angry with them, talk behind their backs, betray them, or reject them. Talking behind their backs. That's a big thing to avoid in personality sort of people. Some participants expressed a feeling of being treated unfairly by others 
who seem to always have their way. Um, and they fearfully acquiesced to the assumed wills of others and frustration and anger would build up in them. I talked about this earlier, that they will give in to other people and then be resentful of that. Some participants said that they avoided all eye contact with other people. They wore sunglasses, they kept their heads down, they hid behind others whom they perceived to be somewhat safe. So, for example, a child who has avoidant personality disorder might always hide behind their parents, even when it seems not age-appropriate. Or an adult might hide behind their parent. You know, you have a 25-year-old daughter who will always hide behind her parents when they're in public situations. Uh, or a husband will hide behind his wife, that kind of thing. And just like hope that she takes care of all social situations. Some chose routes for walking that were less populated or they interacted with others mainly through their computers or text messages. Some strove for perfect behavior as doing so could conceal their perceived flaws or possible defects. So this is where it overlaps with covert narcissism, which I'll get into later. Okay, so we talked about fear and longing, and we talked about dreading to be close. Number three is being alone for better or for worse. All the participants described spending long periods of time at home on their own. Some participants said that they did not mind spending time alone and would go angry if someone attempted to pressure them to relinquish their solitude and join others. The anger seemed fueled by their need to regain control of the ongoing perceived social pressure. At the same time, some participants described feeling sad when they were alone. Their aloneness appeared colored by the lack of hope at ever managing to change their condition. The most common strategy was to stay occupied in various ways. Most described filling their time by playing computer games, watching TV, drawing, cleaning, walking, working out, meditating, etc. So those are all solitary things you can do, solitary. All the participants also reported using mental strategies to distance themselves from unwanted thoughts and feelings. So let's drill down on that one. All the participants with avoidant personality disorder reported using mental strategies to distance themselves from unwanted thoughts and feelings. So thoughts and feelings uh, that would be negative, like people don't like me. So they have, they have these mental strategies like meditating or distractions to try to avoid those emerging, bubbling up feelings like you're, you're a humiliating, awkward, horrible person or you're lonely and you need other people. So those kinds of thoughts that will emerge in them, they'll have ways of getting around that. All right, number four theme is a doubting self. All of the participants conveyed a sense of ongoing doubt originating from insecurity about their own performance and reasoning. They also reported what came to be understood as a fleeting sense of self that could leave them questioning their own identity and agency. So in other words, people with avoidant personality disorder, all of the participants in this study, they didn't have a clear um, confidence in who they were, meaning this, again, lack of self. They didn't really know what their identity really was, and they didn't have a good sense of their own agency, meaning their own power, their own assertiveness. And we could see early childhood mistreatment being the basis of that. Number five is feeling insecure. The people in this study often contrasted this feeling with their ongoing observations of how others seem so content and so secure and competent in their everyday lives. 
one person said, everyone else seems to be e- everyone else seems to easily interact with others. They initiate contact and they seem to do things easily. This is a pretty much a hallmark of people with avoidant personality disorder is this social comparison. They'll they'll frequently say other people just seem to interact with each other. They seem like fine. They have friends. They talk in this very fluid way. Everything seems to roll off their back. They just seem fine. And I'm over here just so different from that. Going back to the study here, some participants did feel a sense of mastery and capability when left on their own to perform at work or enjoy some hobby. So this is a solitary thing. So they did have some sense of mastery. Uh, Following known routines and performing concrete tasks seemed to add to their sense of knowing what to do. So this, again, could cause people to believe maybe they're on the autism spectrum because this person really likes routines and doesn't like to get away from routines. But to the avoidant personality disordered person, they love the routines because they feel competent within it. And when they take risks, especially social risks, risks, they uh, take the risk of ridicule, even to themselves. They might even ridicule themselves. If they're the only ones who notice that they make a mistake, they might actually ridicule themselves because they have those internalized voices. They question whether their reasoning was valid or even real. Hence, they did not trust themselves to make choices or accept responsibilities. Some participants did express that they had quite clear opinions when they were on their own. However, they reported that they usually kept such opinions to themselves to avoid uncomfortable discussions or having to defend their views. So that's another, not all people with avoidant personality sort of have this, but many of them will have this internal, solitary, very opinionated sort of stance where they'll have arguments in their head a lot. They'll be like, you know, they'll argue with Trump or with Obama or someone in, in their heads and they have all these points of view and they feel pretty good about it, but they loathe or they're terrified to ex- to express that to other people. And when they do, they come across as very awkward because they have this baseline schema that other people are going to really criticize them or that they're not good enough to express it. It goes terribly wrong and they retreat to their inner debate world, if that makes sense. Having said that, they might engage in online debates like YouTube commenting or something because you're anonymous, right? So this might give us some insight into some people who might leave really horrible comments on YouTube that they it, it's a safe way, one of the only safe ways for them to actually participate in conversations. And they have a lot of anger built up because they've never been listened to because of their avoidant condition. The last theme here that this study found was searching for a sense of self. Their pretending and hiding all the time added to their experience of being present without being themselves. It was as if they were not viewed as a real person by others or simply were not seen at all. Some participants searched within to gain a connection with their emotions, questioning whether they felt anything at all. Some participants described a sense of agency had become blurred, as though they had lost touch with their own will after years of adapting to that of others' people. Some questioned the entire concept of identity, asking whether other people usually had a clear sense of themselves. 
they emphasized that when spending time in nature, the forest or in the mountains, they were free from painful thoughts and feelings. So let's drill down on the last two here. So for some people with avoidant personality disorder, because they struggle so much with their own identity and they compare themselves to other people so often, they might conclude, well, wait, maybe no one has an identity and those other people are fake. Like they just act like they have an identity, but they don't really. And this would help them to cope with the notion that they don't have an identity. They don't feel like they do. And this last one here is that when they spend time in nature and the mountains and they're free, you know, there's, there's no, when you're on a hike by yourself, for most people, there's no expectation of performance and there's no risk of performance. And so the, the painful thoughts kind of go away for a lot of these people. Okay. So to review the research by Sorensen et al. in 2018 found themes among those with avoidant personality disorder in that they feared relationships and longed for them. They dreaded to get close. They were alone for better or for worse. They, you know, they isolated themselves. They doubted themselves. They felt very insecure and they searched for a sense of self. Okay, so let's check in again with people who actually talk from their own mouths or their own typing what it's like to have avoidant personality disorder. The following accounts are from the subreddit avoidant personality disorder or AV, AVPD. That's how it's uh, you know shortened as AVPD. Because APD, if you just did APD, that's usually for antisocial personality disorder. So AVPD is avoidant personality disorder. And I pulled some people's public comments from that site. One person uh, posted the following thing the other day. They said, does anyone else get upset seeing how well other people are doing in relationships? Just whenever I see other people having healthy relationships, either on social media or in real life, I get so upset and jealous. It reminds me about all the things that seem to come so naturally to them, open communication, showing affection and appreciation, being able to have fun, having attractive personalities, etc. So that's interesting, right? That really typifies what we've been talking about. Another person wrote, do you also agree with everything a person says because you're effing scared to argue? I can't argue. I apologize even when it's not my fault. So we've talked about that before too, right? And here were some replies, two different people replied. Yeah, I do this constantly. When it's with strangers, I usually do it because I feel the need to almost, to almost validate everything they say and because I want the conversation to be over as soon as possible. With friends and family, it's usually because I'm afraid I'll be penalized for having other opinions. So that's interesting. So this person is saying that they agree with everything people say with strangers because they just want the conversation to be over. Yes, yes, yes. You're right. You're right. Let's just, let's just get this over with. With friends and family, I agree with everything they say because I'm afraid of being penalized if I have differing opinions from them. Another person said, yes, I do that too. I'm 30 years old now. And it's ruined every single one of my relationships because I come off as someone completely different. Once I'm comfy with people, I have an easier time actually expressing what I like and dislike. So I just want to point out that this can come across to other people. So this person is saying, 
it's ruined every one of their relationships. Now, why would that be? You know, why would it ruin relationships? Couldn't the other people just recognize that this person is afraid to express themselves, that they have traumas and schemas that contribute to them hiding their true opinion and to be over-accommodating when they don't really want to be? Can't they see that? No, people don't usually see that. What they interpret it as is being aloof or shady or lying or distancing or all bad things. So the next time you come across someone who seems shady or lying, think about where that comes from. We usually assume culturally that shadiness comes from manipulation. But the vast majority of time, shadiness comes from self-protection. Anyway, another post here on Avoidant Personality Disorder subreddit. Someone wrote, took 30 years to hear of Avoidant Personality Disorder, but that is surely what is going on with me. My husband has been an absolute godsend and things are getting better as I get older. But when we met, one thing I really needed to get across to him was that I have moments where I feel I need to just get into bed, cover everything up, and not speak to anyone. I didn't want anyone on the planet looking at me or hearing me or thinking about my, even my existence. Those waves were the absolute worst feeling. When I get them now, they usually pass in a few seconds or a minute instead of hours. So this is interesting. This person describes their experience as having waves of this terror of being seen and they wanted to crawl into bed and they didn't want anyone looking at them and they didn't even want anyone to know that they existed. That was the only way they could get away from this terrible feeling. But they've recovered, which is, gives us all hope, right? Another person says here on the subreddit, in a group, everyone eventually wonders what's wrong with me. People often look at me People often look at me like I kill the mood. People often look at me like I kill the mood. Apparently, I can't talk the normal amount that is expected. I don't have it in me. And then there's a, there's a few replies to this one. One person says, yep, it's like most people just don't know how to keep talking, even if there's no real subject. It's always bothered me that I don't have this. Oh, sorry. It's like most people just know how. So this person's saying, yeah, people just know how to keep a conversation going, even if there's no real subject to follow. It's always bothered me that I don't have this skill at all. I had a friend at school who obviously found me awkward in this respect, and they would try to break a silence by saying, so, as if that would magically lead into a new topic, and I always found that really weird, lol. It only amplified the awkwardness, really. Another person commented, I literally don't know what I'm supposed to say after the conversation is over, if I can even get one going. Another person said, Oh my God, same. I just end up sitting there staring at people and wondering how other people can just keep talking and it's fine. Like, what's their secret? Okay. So why would someone be that way? A frequent uh, conceptualization is autism. Why would someone have difficulty keeping a conversation going. Again, like I said, you, you, you present that symptom to anyone in my field, in my circle, very frequently, oh, autism. Now, that is a you know, symptom that might be a sign of autism, but there's so many other conditions that can lead to that, i.e., 
avoidant personality disorder. And why would that happen to someone? Well, if you believe that you have nothing to offer, then it's going to be hard to initiate and sustain a conversation. If you believe that you're awkward and worthless in social situations, then you're just waiting for them to be over and you're too anxious to be spontaneous about your own involvement in a conversation. For those of you who have been in a conversation recently that went well, how did you know what to say at any given moment? Well, my guess is, is you just said things. Well, how did you know, how did you decide on what to say? Well, my guess is, is you just sort of intuited. You just sort of said, oh, I'm just going to say this now. It was like a, like a split second, like a, a tenth of a second decision-making process to say the next thing that came out of your mouth. Well, if you're taught from an early age that you're not good enough to express yourself and or you're not given social um, practice to learn that you have something to offer socially, your parents were overprotective. They didn't let you have those kinds of conversations or they gave you the impression that other people are so dangerous that you probably shouldn't, shouldn't open your mouth and you shouldn't express yourself to other people, whatever. What are all those schemas I talked about earlier? I'm defective. I deserve to be isolated. I'm incompetent. The world is scary. I'm going to fail at everything. Then you're going to be so assuming of all those things that when there is a lull in the conversation, nothing emerges from within you because you don't believe you have anything to offer. You believe if you do offer something, it's going to go terribly wrong, that it's not good enough. You believe that people are just dying to get away from you to begin with, and you're so anxious about humiliation that you can't really get in touch with who you are. You probably had abuse or abandonment or neglect when you were two or three years old that led to you not developing a sense of self. So you don't really, you're not even really in connection with who you are as a person and what you want. And so things don't, you're not in connection with all the bubbling conversation starters that are happening for you. All right. And this last person on, on uh, the subreddit said, I feel like everyone is watching me or just that I stand out more than the average person for some reason. I am afraid to be proactive and to take the initiative on things because I'm worried that what I'm going to do won't seem normal to people and that I might draw and it might draw attention to me. I have actually managed to talk with my flatmates a few times, but every time it's uncomfortable conversation where I stand awkwardly and they sometimes make sly smiles like they're thinking dude, what are you doing? And I'm afraid that I ooze, I ooze of something that makes me unlikable. So just that. I'm afraid that I ooze of something that makes me unlikable. That, that's a very telling avoidant personality disorder statement to say. I ooze unlikableness. I have zero social skills, and it's especially hard to build these up when you don't know exactly what they are to begin with. All right, so that's, that's subreddit stuff. All right, let's get into the DSM. Usually these kinds of talks will start with the DSM, but I find that the DSM is only kind of useful to begin with, so I usually don't like to privilege it. We often will think of avoidant personality disorder as something that emerged from the DSM, which is not true. Avoidant personality disorder emerged within clinicians and researchers, and the DSM included it in their book, which is fine. So what is the DSM-5? 
define avoidant personality disorder as. And this is my paraphrase because the way they word things is kind of hard to say in a podcast form. Basically, it is a pervasive pattern, meaning a pervasive, meaning that it's all the time pretty much, of shyness, feeling inadequate, and being very sensitive to negative evaluation, negative critic. Sometimes people see that word evaluation and they think it means like school evaluation, and certainly it can mean that, but it's more social evaluation, meaning criticism from your friends and family, being seen as ridiculous or awkward or off or something. Symptoms begin in early adulthood, and here's where that's just kind of silly because Research shows that all personality disorders have childhood um, antecedents. So that's um, – I disagree with that one. It, the People can't – when they study the DSM in grad school, sometimes they'll walk away with this notion that personality disorders emerge in adulthood. Like it's like you're not borderline until you're 18. But as someone who's treated teenagers in particular and younger people who have – the precursors to the personality disorder, I'm here to say that the personality disorder was always there. It just looks different when you're younger. Now, it's harder to diagnose people when they're younger because you don't know if it's a phase or like there's plenty of kids who go through like a really shy phase. And what is that? And they might have really distorted views of other people. Well, it could just be a phase. So it's, it's hard to know. But it's not like we don't see behaviors in kids and teenagers that very well could be emerging or very well could be the presentation of someone who is always going to suffer from that personality disorder. Because I hope that it's clear that this disorder emerges from very early childhood experiences and are perpetuated by things that are um, happening in, in their lives later. Also in the DSM, it says that symptoms occur in a range of situations. It's not just at school. It's also at home. It's also, you know, it's not, in other words, you're not just shy at work. You're, it's all situations for the most part. And at least four of the seven symptoms must be present for someone to qualify for the disorder. Avoidance of activities at work that involve interpersonal contact due to fear of criticism or rejection. Unwillingness to interact with others unless certain that they will receive a positive response. Hesitancy in intimate relationships due to fear of shame. Preoccupation with criticism in social situations. Feeling inadequate and being inhibited in new social situations. Perception of self as inept, unappealing, and inferior. Reluctance to take risks or engage in activities that might result in embarrassment. So let's get into the historical roots because I find it interesting to learn of the history in our field of avoidant personality disorder. So the condition, it's not like it emerged at some point in our society. It's always been there, right? And it was described by various psychoanalytic authors starting in the early 1900s, over 100 years ago. But they used different names for it back then. Because they didn't have the DSM until 1952, and so different authors and descriptive conventions were at play. For example, Bloiler in 1911 described some people that he was treating as people who are shut in and suspicious. 
And so it's possible that today those people that Bloiler was looking at would be described as having avoidant personality disorder. Hard to know. Hotch in 1910 described some people he was treating who were shy, reclusive, sensitive, and tended to live in a world of fantasy. So this sounds akin to someone with avoidant personality disorder. Hard to know, but possible. Karen Horney in 1950 described a patient who was interpersonally avoidant. She observed that these people are afraid of others, and this drives the need to be self-sufficient and not rely on other people. And that sounds very close to avoidant personality disorder. Hard to say, but Karen Horn and I seem to be describing that early. Object relations authors wrote about avoidant and anxious people as having internalized criticism from others in childhood, which results in intense self-criticism later in life. So a lot of you who have been listening to the podcast a long time might be thinking about those kinds of issues of internalized relationships, internalized criticism, internalized shaming that later becomes self-shaming and self-criticism. Okay, so then the DSM-1 is published in 1952. And in this, we have schizoid personality, which anyone who had avoidant personality disorder would have been uh, subsumed under. So schizoid personality, which I'll do a whole other deep dive on, and I'll talk about the differentials in a second. But schizoid personality is basically someone who's alone a lot. But for uh, DSM-1, they included a lot of different people in that category of schizoid. DSM-2, published in 1968, same schizoid personality was the descriptor that avoidant personality people would have been subsumed within. Then comes Theodore Milan, which I talked about earlier, uh, American psychologist, major figure in our understanding of personality disorders. In 1969, he coined the term avoidant personality disorder. He wanted to differentiate between schizoid personality, which was something that was well understood, as people who are passively detached from those who are actively detached and those people we want to call something else, and he said avoidant personality disorder. So in other words, he, he found that this category of schizoid was had too many people in it, and there were two different types, and one of the types should be uh, separated out. So schizoid, he was like, schizoids should be reserved for those people who just don't seem to have a need for interaction with other people, or they cut themselves off from their need a long time ago and they don't have any drive to socialize. They don't long for relationships. They're alone and they, they appear to be happy, which I'll get into in the deep dive later. But anyway, whereas avoidant personality disorder people, they are also alone and they also avoid relationships often, but they long to have relationships. So those people seem different from schizoid people. So he, he added that that term, avoidant personality disorder people. And 11 years later, it was included in the DSM-3 in 1980. There was a lot of controversy at the time of this bifurcation of schizoid because, one, it lacked empirical foundation at the time. It doesn't anymore, but there wasn't a lot of research at the time because there wasn't a lot of time to research it. And also 
people were basically upset about because schizoid the term schizoid personality goes way back to Klein and all these early figures in object relations and personality and to for schizoid to be kind of demoted in that way was threatening to people and it persisted until today through DSM-4 and DSM-5. Avoidant personality disorder has undergone substantial changes since its introduction in DSM-3 in 1980 because of research and further refinement of the label and further refinement of personality disorders in general. And also because the initial definition of avoidant personality disorder was too close to schizoid, so there's been this continual effort to kind of differentiate avoidant personality and schizoid and also avoidant personality and social phobia, that there's a lot of overlap. And so a lot of the debate over the years has been how do, how do we differentiate between these two things? However, throughout all the DSMs from the beginning of Theodore Milan's work, there's always been the features of social withdrawal, sensitivity to criticism, and a devalued view of the self. All right, so let's go into differentials here, differential diagnoses. So this, these are diagnoses that when you're diagnosing someone in my field, you want to rule out because like social anxiety disorder, for example. If someone presented with the symptoms of avoidant personality disorder, you would have to make a case in your notes or even in your own mind that it wasn't actually social anxiety disorder that you're just misinterpreting as avoidant personality disorder. And as we go through these differentials and talking about these different categories, it's important to keep, to, keep in mind that all of these labels, avoidant personality disorder, um, social anxiety disorder, other personality disorders, these are just what we call diagnostic constructs, meaning that we construct them. They're not things that exist in the real world. A tree exists in the real real world. A marmot or a beaver, you know, that exists. And there are ways of categorizing those creatures, either through DNA or morphology, these kinds of things. A mountain exists. Oxygen in the air exists. And when we call something oxygen versus nitrogen, there are concrete measuring uh, techniques to actually differentiate those two different things. To differentiate between avoidant personality disorder and social anxiety disorder, we don't have anything like that because we're not actually looking at a thing. What we're talking about is a condition that we have decided for various different reasons to lump together into one construct. And there are many constructs that we talk about that are not even included in the DSM just because people just decide not to do that. Psychopathy being one, sadistic personality disorder being another, um, hypersexual sec, uh, disorder, another, you know, there's, there's many. So we just have to keep that in mind. Now, why would we have the constructs if they're not actual real things? Well, because we want to facilitate research. We need to be talking about it. If we want to understand things, we need to have labels of what we're researching to begin with. Imagine if everyone had a different definition of avoidant personality disorder and then everyone who was doing research, it'd be hard to know what was happening. And sometimes that happens, like with other non-DSM sorts of things, like complicated grief, for example, doesn't really have a firm definition. So it's hard to research it because everyone's looking at it, at defining it differently. Um, this is a problem in on the internet when it, when it comes to the word narcissism. 
everyone basically has a different definition or there's a set of different definitions that people are using when they're talking about narcissism. Um, <clears throat> anyway, point is, is that it's important to define things. It helps. Also, it, facili it facilitates communication between professionals. So if I'm talking to a fellow colleague and, and I say this person has avoidant personality disorder, I don't necessarily have to describe their entire personality for, the, for my colleague to understand the gist of what is at play. Now, that doesn't fully describe someone because, as I've been saying, everyone with, with avoidant personality disorder is different. But it does provide a shorthand for quick conversations to occur. Also, uh, these labels help develop treatment methods so that we can research them. You know, if, if we don't have these labels then and, and we don't have a, a way of describing them and defining them, then how do we apply different treatment methods to these things so that we know if treatment works? And also to get funding from insurance because in order to get uh, your insurance to pay for treatment, there has to be some disorder. And so that's why we have these things anyway. All right. So let's look at differential diagnosis with social anxiety disorder first. As I've been saying, social anxiety disorder is very similar to avoidant personality disorder. Uh, some of you DSM-4 people might remember this as being called social phobia. So let's, let's, call, let, let's look at the criteria here. Fear of social or performing situations. Okay. Sounds like avoidant personality disorder. The fear may be specific to a particular situation, like public speaking, or it may be generalized to several situations. Okay, kind of sounds like avoidant personality. They withdraw from feared social situations. Again, kind of sounds like avoidant personality. They most likely realize that their fears are excessive, but not always. So here's the differentiating criterion. They most likely realize that their fears are excessive. <clears throat> People with avoidant personality disorder in the beginning do not recognize that their fears are excessive usually. In the same way that People with borderline personality disorder do not realize that their fears of abandonment are excessive. It takes a lot of therapy and a lot of compassion for people with personality disorders to realize that their feelings and their perceptions are distorted, as everyone's is, but particularly people with personality disorders. That's the, that's the, the hallmark of a personality disorder is, is distorted perceptions. If it's one thing you remember about the definition of personality disorder – is a, a pervasive distorted perception that the person is absolutely positive about, but other people would say, that's strange that you see the world that way. So, but about particular things. Anyway, so people with social anxiety disorder, they usually recognize, yeah, I, I shouldn't, like for me, for example, when I was talking earlier about having to introduce myself in a meeting, I had some social anxiety. I don't qualify for the social anxiety disorder, but I had some mild social anxiety. My heart was racing. My hands were sweating. Oh, crap. I have to introduce myself. But the whole time I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. I don't have anything to be afraid of. <laughs> no one cares about my stupid introduction. <laughs> why, why is my body so afraid right now? <clears throat> Having said that, not everyone with social anxiety disorder has that insight. That's what we call it, insight. Other criteria here are physiological anxiety symptoms of arousal, like blushing, sweating, trembling, palpitations, and nausea, 
often occur when feeling social anxiety. And also, considerable impairments in social functioning, quality of life, and career progression. That's, you know, the DSM sort of thing that is present in most of the disorders, that it has to, you know, impair your life somehow. So this might sound like, well, wait, so is it just the insight thing? Well, let's look at it. So like I said, there's lots of overlap between social anxiety and avoidant personality disorder. And there are so many articles and research papers on whether or not they are just the same thing. And there's been a lot of debate over the years. And in the end, the authors of the DSM-5 decided to continue to keep these things separate. It's possible that at one point we won't see avoidant personality disorder in the DSM anymore. They'll just have maybe a qualifier for social anxiety disorder that will be like um, with insight, without insight, or with uh, you know pervasive personality traits anyway. So what does research tell us? Well, research tells us that those with avoidant personality disorder have higher levels of social anxiety than those with social anxiety disorder. And sometimes that's all that people will go to. They'll just say, oh, avoidant personality disorder is just more severe social anxiety. But that's an oversimplification because I've certainly met some people who have social anxiety. They have insight into it, like it, there's, it's distorted. There's something weird about the way that they think. But they don't have this deep sense of a problem. Anyway, I'll get into that in a second. So don't think of avoidant personality disorder as just an extreme social anxiety. That's a very simplistic way of looking at it. If that's all you think about it, I suppose that's fine, but it's deeper than that. They also find that people with avoidant personality disorder are less assertive. So people with social anxiety can be assertive. People with avoidant personality disorder are more conflict avoidant. They're more avoidant of expressing any emotion. And they're greater, they have greater dependency on other people. So this is when we see, oh, it's not just social anxiety. People with avoidant personality, they're not just socially anxious. They're less assertive. They avoid conflict. They avoid expressing any emotion. And they're more dependent on other people. So it's deeper than just social anxiety. Your social anxiety can really interfere with your life. But on average, you're not going to be dependent on other people. You're not going to let it it, it it doesn't the the condition of social anxiety doesn't include these notions that you're not good enough and that the world is a terrible place remember of people avoidant personality disorder they are not privy to their distortions the socially anxious person will say it just feels like the world is a terrible place but the world isn't a terrible place When I get up on stage and I have to give a speech, it just feels like it's going to be horrible, but it's not actually horrible. To the avoidant personality disorder person, they're 100% convinced that the world is scary. Other people are out to get them in terms of criticize them, that they're not good enough, that they need to subjugate themselves to other people to get other people to like them, that they can't express their emotions freely because there's inherent factual Uh, you know, danger to that. So the difference to me is between social anxiety and avoidant personality disorder is when those with social anxiety are given a chance to evaluate their reactivity, they will will be relatively 
easily to they will relatively easily conclude that their anxiety is excessive and not justified. Think about it like social anxiety is like a traumatic reaction, a specific traumatic reaction, if you're aware of that t- terminology. Like for people who get in a car crash at the age of 25, the next day they might be phobic about getting into a car. So they're not phobic about leaving the house. They're just phobic about being in a car. And it makes sense, right? Because they were in this traumatic situation about this car wreck. So think about social anxiety in that way, that it's sort of a specific traumatic reaction. They probably had some traumas about humiliation on stage or performance or something. Whereas someone who, uh, because of their early childhood experiences, learned that the world is scary, then that person isn't just scared of being on stage. They're scared of the world. They're scared of what is in other people's minds. And that's a much larger much broader, much more pervasive problem than just being afraid of getting on stage. That's not that simple, but I hope that makes sense. Another difference worth pointing out is that people with avoidant personality disorder, they often will sometimes, they often will sometimes, (laughs) they sometimes will believe that they are the rational ones and that everyone else is irrational. For example, they might believe that everyone is in denial about how critical everyone is. Because remember, they have this distorted perception that everyone is critical. Everyone's critical of them. And they think, why don't other people recognize how scary and how critical and how judgmental everyone is? Well, everyone else must just be stupid or fake or deluded or dumb. I see the world the way the world really is, which is other people are, t- are terrible. And other people know Uh, the flaws that you exhibit. How come everyone's walking around like that doesn't exist? So that's another hallmark of personality disorders. Again, going to borderline, you you talk to someone with borderline personality disorder, they're going to say, well, people abandon people. And that's just the way things are. And people are terrible. And if you don't believe that, then you're the dumb one, you know, (laughs) that kind of thing. Or another sort of scenario that will happen in therapy will, will be uh, – I've had borderline clients say this to me. They'll, they'll say, you're thinking bad thoughts about me and you want to abandon me. And then I'll say, no, I don't. I, I don't want to abandon you at all. I like working with you and I'm dedicated to you. And they'll be like, no, you're stupid. You're just lying to me. So the, per, the distorted perception is, is at first impervious to outside influence. These are facts. The, the, you know, the feeling that they're having is undifferentiated from their ability to evaluate it. Think about it like this. Like, we've all had this experience. When you walk into a room and a group of people, they stop talking. So everyone's talking. You hear them behind the door. You open the door, and everyone just stops talking. Well, there's a lot of possibilities to what happened, right? Well, if you're avoidant personality disorder, you're going to be like, those people – obviously stop talking because I'm an awkward person and they don't like talking to me. So I, I'll just, I'll go in and out of the break room at work because they hate me. Another person, maybe even a socially anxious person would walk into the room. Everyone stops talking. There'd be this initial worry like, huh, were they talking about me? But other people would likely say, well, maybe not. Maybe they just randomly stop talking. Or maybe they were talking about something 
that's embarrassing to them that they don't want me to hear because I don't know them that well. There, there's other explanations other than I'm a terrible person, everyone knows it, I'm awkward, everyone knows it, that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's, I hope that differentiates between avoidant personality disorder and social anxiety. All right, let's look at closely related personality disorders. So there's been a lot of debate over the years because there are some close personality disorders, like schizoid, like I said. But the difference between schizoid and avoidant personality disorder is that schizoid people seem to be very happy about the fact that they're alone and perfectly content. I'll get into that in the deep dive because uh, they're not really content, but they will not long. They won't be busted up about it. They won't go on a subreddit and talk about how they feel awkward all the time because they just don't care, seemingly. Avoidant personality disorder people do. They are alone and they long to be with other people. So that differentiates it from schizoid. Okay, let's talk about dependent personality disorder and how it differentiates from avoidant personality. So both will have low self-esteem. Both will be worried about rejection. Both will need a lot of reassurance. Both will have problems with anger and with assertiveness. But the difference is, is for dependent personality, they actually enter into relationships pretty easily, whereas avoidant personality are very hesitant to enter into new relationships. Also, dependent people don't necessarily have social anxiety, but they might. And also, for dependent people, their fear is usually wrapped up in a particular person. They're usually dependent on a particular person, a spouse usually, who they have pushed into a parent-like figure. Whereas avoidant personality people, they don't do that. They're generally worried about rejection from everyone, basically because they feel unworthy. Schizotypal personality disorder is also often confused for avoidant. Schizotypal personality disorder is pretty interesting. And to hear a description of it, you probably won't really understand it. You'd have to experience someone with it. And I'm looking forward to doing a deep dive on this. I've treated people with it before. It's really quite particular in its presentation. They both have severe social anxiety, schizotypal and avoidant, borderlining on delusional. But schizotypal people are more in the direction of delusional. They're more in the direction of schizophrenia in some ways. They might also have, they often also have unconventional beliefs that seem delusional, that seem almost in the realm of schizophrenia. They might have a lot of odd behavior in the way that they talk and the way that they dress, usually based on their unconventional beliefs. They might have beliefs that that women who wear dresses are always seen as being slutty or something like this. And it's kind of particular to each person. And when you talk with them about it and say, no, you can certainly wear a dress if you want to. No, no one's going to judge you for that. They won't necessarily believe you. They might also have magical thinking and magical perceptions. They might think that the world is sort of designed for them. Uh, I had a client once who was walking around town and thought that the street signs were trying to tell her a message about the world. And, that, and, the, and she sort of hallucinated. They were like mild hallucinations. And so 
Now, some people would say, well, why don't we just categorize that as an axis one schizophrenia disorder or some sort of delusional or thought disorder? Well, it, it's a personality disorder for various reasons, which I'll get into in the deep dive. But that's pretty different than avoidant personality disorder. Again, both schizotypal, paranoid, schizoid, and avoidant people will tend to have a lot of a social anxiety or a lot of social isolation, but you have to look deeper to differentiate between the different personality disorders. Now, I, I said earlier that sometimes avoidant can be pers- uh, misunderstood as covert narcissistic, narcissistic personality disorder. So let's talk about that briefly. And if you want more information, listen to my full deep dive available to patrons only on narcissistic personality disorder. So they're very different. There's various different terms for this type of narcissism. Sometimes it's called covert narcissistic personality. Sometimes it's called vulnerable narcissistic. Sometimes it's called hypervigilant narcissistic personality. It kind of depends on the author. And again, these are constructs that people will put together. But basically... For these covert, meaning that they won't, they op, they often aren't. So the classic narcissistic personality sort of person, they often brag. They will bolster or spin things about them to make themselves look better, like, or they'll frequently point things out, like often saying they have a high IQ, that they have really nice cars that they they said a joke last night and it was really funny and you should have been there about how awesome it was it's it's overt those that's the common presentation or one that people identify anyway there's also a lot of people who what we call they have covert narcissism meaning that deep down they have the same dysfunction in their personality that leads to deep shame and deep worthlessness lack of self and extreme sensitivity to uh, rejection and, and, and criticism. But instead of overcompensating by coming across like they're awesome and they're arrogant and they're the best person in the world, they will actually come across to other people as being very shy and being very thin-skinned. But again, deep down, they believe they're better than other people. And they will be they will have fantasies of glory and power over other people. And they can be quite envious of other people, as all narcissistic people can. But they come across as being very shy and very thin-skinned. They, they come across as being very sensitive to criticism. So this could look like avoidant, pers- avoidant personality, right? Because avoidant personality people, one way of describing them is that they're very thin-skinned, that if they ever got a negative look or any kind of criticism from other people, they're extremely sensitive to that. And they are very... Uh, cognizant of how they come across to other people. And one could say that avoidant personality is a kind of narcissism, this notion that people are looking at you all the time, that people care about the way your face looks and the way that you're dressed and everything that you say, that people are hyper-focused on everything that you do. It's kind of a self-centered way of looking at things. But the difference is, is to the avoidant person, It's because they believe deep down that there's something wrong with them, and they're pretty in touch with that notion. To the narcissistic person, they believe deep down that that they're a worthless person, but they have a very, very robust 
defensive structure that covers that up that is grandiose, that they're awesome, that they're the best person in the world. And they're usually not consciously in touch with their inner worthlessness that they feel. Other differential diagnoses to look at is schizophrenia. So when you have emerging or low symptoms schizophrenia, it can look kind of like avoidant personality disorder. But anyone who knows anything about schizophrenia and avoidant would be able to differentiate those two. It can also look like major depression. When people are depressed, they will lack self-esteem, just like avoidant people will. They will stay home a lot because they don't have any motivation, just like avoidant people will. Now, the difference is the depressed person doesn't have any motivation. That's why they stay home. The avoided person is staying home because they're terrified of being criticized and rejected. Depressed people will avoid taking risks and they'll avoid doing things, again, because of low self-esteem or because they lack motivation. But again, anyone who knows anything about depression and avoidant will be able to tell the difference once they look into it. The signs might look similar, though. Another differential here is obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. These people sometimes will avoid things and stay home. But again, the difference here is pretty clear once you get to know their inner experience because OCD, people with OCD will complain about obsessions, about all sorts of things, not just about criticism from other people. It's usually things like uh, God is going to kill me or... Um, if I don't do this procedure just right, something terrible is going to happen, like a superstitious belief. Or if I leave the house, I'm going to get infected with some disease and I'm going to die a long, horrible death, something like that. The avoidant personality people do not typically have those kinds of things. And if they did, we wouldn't necessarily consider them a symptom of their disorder. And the last uh Differential here is just general anxiety disorders, generalized anxiety, other kinds of uh, anxiety disorders, maybe PTSD. These also could be confused for avoidant personality if you didn't know much information, if you only know the, knew, the basics, knew the basics. All right. So now let's go to co-occurring here. So a lot of other disorders that I've already mentioned are, will often co-occur or be comorbid with avoidant personality. So social anxiety disorder, you might be surprised for a lot of clinicians, they will, they will actually diagnose their clients with both, with both avoidant personality and social anxiety. And one study, Retu in 2000, found that between 25% and almost 100% of clients had both social anxiety and avoidant personality disorder. So it's sort of interesting that that would be the case, right? I find that to be weird, honestly, because if I had someone with avoidant personality who had social anxiety symptoms, I would just consider that to be a part of the avoidant personality. Now, it's also possible that people who are getting diagnosed are being diagnosed by multiple people. And so when you get diagnosed by a lot of people, there tends to be a a piling on of, dis of disorders as someone else comes on. They're like, well, <clears throat> I don't want to take away the diagnosis that the other person put, but I consider this more social anxiety, so I'm going to add that. I don't know if that's the case. Also, there's a lot of uh, co-occurring or comorbidity with generalized anxiety. Almost half, according to one study, of people with 
avoidant personality also were diagnosed with generalized anxiety. Also, about half were diagnosed with OCD. About a quarter were diagnosed with um, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. Another study found that between 10 or 50% of people with avoidant personality also qualify for panic disorder. About a quarter qualify for PTSD. About a third qualify for depression. About a quarter also qualify for dysthymic disorder. About a fifth uh, qualify for borderline personality. In fact, early theorists proposed that we add a new designation uh, called avoidant borderline mixed personality because of the frequency that you will see borderline and avoidant uh, in the same person. Also, non-suicidal self-injury, avoidant personality with PTSD has the highest rate of non-suicidal uh, self-injury. So when, as I was talking about earlier, when you hear about someone who is engaging in cutting or you know, bodily abuse to cope with their feelings, it's almost always associated with borderline. But according to this one study, they found that it is very often avoidant personality. So it makes me wonder how many avoidant personality folks are being misdiagnosed with borderline. I don't know. And about a third to a half of people with avoidant personality also suffer from substance use disorders, particularly alcohol, benzos, and heroin. And what do all three of these drugs have in common? Well, they calm the nerves and they numb us out. When we drink, when we take Xanax, when we take heroin, it takes away our pain and takes away our anxiety. Benzodiazepines are specifically for anxiety. And it doesn't, it, you know, it makes a lot of sense, right? That if you're constantly struggling with social anxiety and feelings of complete worthlessness and, um, you know, there's something deeply wrong with you, then uh, it would make sense that if you could numb out on alcohol, benzos, and heroin and or heroin, that you could have a reprieve from that pain. And that would be very tempting to continue to use it. So again, there's a lot of people with avoidant personality that, who are diagnosed with various different anxiety disorders, OCD, OC personality disorder, borderline personality, and some mood disorders, as well as PTSD, which makes sense because if you were mistreated growing up, it's often, if you were mistreated to the level of developing avoidant personality, it's often the case that there are other traumatic responses to that mistreatment, such as anxiety disorders and depressive disorders. But the interesting thing here is to think about someone with both avoidant and borderline, that someone would be diagnosed with both of them. Because to me, if someone qualified for borderline, then I would find that a lot of the anxieties that they had about people, I would just sort of consider to be part of the borderline. They would have to present particular uh, social anxiety to me to justify adding on avoidant personality or the other way around. Anyway, now some of you might be thinking about, well, you know, they have a word for avoidant personality disorder in Japan, uh, which is Taijin Kyofusho. Kyofusho. Taijin Kyofusho. I'm Japanese, but I don't speak it. And also, 
hikikomori. Hiki, hikikomori. Hikikomori? Hikikomori. Um, or haikai komori, as maybe an American might say. So there are these different uh, conditions, cultural specific syndromes is what we call them in Japan, where they are talking essentially about social anxiety. Taijin Kyo Fusho is uh, essentially it translates into social anxiety, but it's a more broad definition of social anxiety than avoidant personality disorder. It includes subtypes of fear of humiliation, fear of being offensive to others, like having annoying body odors, maybe even being delusional. And its prevalence in Japan is anywhere between 3 and 13%. And people of all genders will suffer from this, but I think there's a higher rate for males. But plenty of females in Japan suffer from it as well. Also, hikiko, hikiko, hikikomori, <laughs> I'm trying to say it right, you know. Uh, and it's not karaoke, it's karaoke, right? It's hikikomori. Um, essentially, this translates into acute social withdrawal. If you're familiar with this, you might have seen news reports of young men who are cooped up in their small Tokyo apartment with video games and a lot of anime stuff. You know, they might collect a lot of anime stuff. They might even have a pillow that they sleep with that has a big anime girl on it, and they have a pretend girlfriend and stuff. And so in Japan, uh, they are uh, at least focusing on this, or they have a particular problem with it. And there are speculations as to why they would have a problem with this. Um, speculations that in Japan, they put particular pressure on children to succeed, and that Japan has particular, particularly over, particularly overprotective parenting strategies, and also the culture tends to shame people more. So people in Japan might be more likely to develop this extreme worry that other people will reject them and shame them, and this extreme notion that they are unworthy and that there's something very wrong with them, and then that drives them to stay home all the time, and it's uh, a big deal. Now, I will say that there's many, many people in America who also suffer from uh, avoidant personality, but we don't tend to focus on it that much because it's just not a big news story, I think. I also think that it tends to get blamed on parents who aren't tough enough on their kids or the economy or something. I, I sometimes will hear stories about like, you know, more kids staying home more often. And I always wonder like, well, how many of those kids are suffering from avoidant personality disorder and not attributed to the, to the, you know, the scapegoat of the day again, like the rising costs of college and these kinds of, and these are real things. And these are real reasons why people will stay home. But in Japan, they've, they've really identified like, you know, something's going on with, with these people who are really suffering. Now I want to be clear that research has found that a lot of these uh, people in Japan who are cooped up don't suffer from avoidant personality. They might suffer from a lot of things. So one study, Suwa and Hara in 2007 found that most of these people who were in Japan stuck at home all the time were suffering from high-functioning pervasive developmental disorder, personality disorders such as avoidant 
OCD, depression, or intellectual disability. So there are a lot of reasons why people were resorting to just staying home and never leaving. Okay, so we finally arrived at the final chapter here, which is treatment. How do you help people with avoidant personality disorder? Well, there hasn't been much research on the treatment of avoidant personality. So we don't really know much yet about the treatment, or at least there's not consensus. And uh, I'm not sure why it's been an ignored area in my field. For example, there's a lot of, there's a lot of research on borderline. Why is that? Even though avoidant personality might be more prevalent, it's hard to say. If I was to speculate, I might say that borderline people are much more likely to come to therapy and avoidant people are less likely. So maybe that's why. I don't know. But the fact is, is we need to do more in our field to make to raise awareness about avoidant personality, to reach out to people with avoidant personality. There's a lot of people right now suffering from avoidant personality disorder, perhaps millions of people in the United States, who believe there's something wrong with them and don't believe that therapy can help. And maybe many of them go to therapy and get diagnosed with social anxiety and get mistreated and run away from therapy. And that actually is found in the research, that they, that they rarely come to therapy, and when they do, they tend to drop out early. Now, why is that? Well, it makes some sense because they're avoidant, right? And so their, their coping style is to avoid. And therapy, especially with personality disorders, can be, can be difficult. You, you have to uh, persevere against a lot of odds uh, internally. And so there's that. But I think another factor is that a lot of therapists probably just don't even know what's happening when they come in. So uh, that's an important thing for us, I think, to raise awareness around. So, yeah, we need to raise awareness and we need to notice it more readily. We have to have better assessment for it. We have to be more responsive when they do come in to therapy. We need to do a better job because these people are suffering. And they often, if untreated, will go on to develop other conditions like substance use disorders, major depression, even suicide, and so on. And so we need to do better, and I think we need to do a better job. We need to be better at detecting it because they will often present as if they're fine in therapy or as if they don't want to talk to us. But deep down, they're desperate for a close relationship that is corrective for them. Okay, so let's talk about medications, and then let's talk about my model of psychotherapy. Because again, there isn't really a standard model, so I'm just going to provide one. So let's talk about medications. I'm not a medical professional, so take what I say with that in mind. There is little to no research demonstrating any effectiveness of medication when it comes to avoidant personality. And this is true about most, if not all, personality disorders. They tend not to respond very well to medication. The reason why, as I was talking about earlier, is because personality disorders are a matter of distorted perceptions, and we don't have any medications for distorted perceptions. That's, that's a personality issue. For example, if someone's suffering from social anxiety, like I've suffered from performance anxiety, and I took a beta blocker, propranolol, and that uh, subdues your nervous response, the sweaty palms, the shakiness in your voice, that kind of thing, the heart racing. And that actually worked pretty well for my performance anxiety. When, when I took that medication to reduce my, that sort of physical nervousness, it 
I felt better on stage when I would do things or when I would teach. I would have to take propranolol when I would teach classes back in the day for many years, probably like 15 years. So that is social anxiety, performance anxiety. That it's not a matter of my perceptions that's causing that. It's it's akin to, if not a traumatic reactivity of the nervous system. And if you apply an anti-anxiety medication, then you're going to have some relief to that anxiety. But when your anxiety is propelled on the foundation of your perceptions, then you might be able to take a medication to take the edge off a little bit, but it's not going to take it away because your whole personality is based around a number of ideas, including the idea that other people are scary and that they're going to get you. So avoidant personality disorder and all personality disorders like borderline don't respond well to medications. Someone with borderline might take an antidepressant to feel less depressed, but that's to address their depression, not their borderline personality. Having said that, there are some medications that have been used to, again, take the edge off or to treat the sort of ancillary symptoms, like antidepressants, like SSRIs, anti-anxiety medications, MAOIs. These basically uh, help to reduce people's sensitivity to rejection, maybe take a little bit of the depression off, that kind of thing. But in my experience, medications are not the long-term solution. The long-term solution is what I'm going to propose here with my model. So as with most personality disorder treatments and attachment disorder treatments, there are two main components, and then I'll add a third component in a second. The two main components are one, awareness, and two, corrective experiences. This is my model of therapy. This is my guiding principle pretty much to all therapy that I provide, unless something's particular to a client. So let's talk about awareness first. So awareness with the avoidant personality person requires some psychoeducation, normalization, acceptance. You might even want to tell people, like the people who wrote in, emailed in, they were told that they had avoidant personality, and I'm guessing their therapist went over what that condition means. And that really helped that person. They said, oh, I feel so good now that I understand that I have this thing that is real. I always thought it was something unique to me. And it feels so much better to know that this is something that a lot of people suffer from, which means that there's a way out of this. So psychoeducation is an important part of that. Another part of it, this awareness process, is cognitive therapy, narrative therapy, Bowenian therapy. Uh, you know, rational emotive therapy. These are confronting the notions that everyone is looking at you, that everyone is uh, unsafe, that no one, um, you know, so you want, so backing up. So cognitive therapy involves analyzing thoughts. Ra- rational emotive therapy uh, it has to do with analyzing the way that you think about things. So the avoidant personality person comes in and says, well, I'm really suffering today. Okay, well, what's going on? Well, you know, I'm, I'm really anxious. I, I barely even made it into the office. Okay, well, let, let's talk about the automatic thoughts you had as you were thinking about coming into therapy. What, what were the thoughts you were having? Well, I had thoughts that you were going to think that my hat looks stupid or that my outfit looks stupid or that my face looks stupid or that my ideas were stupid or that there was going to be a lull in our conversation and I wasn't going to know what to say. And then the therapist would help walk through that. It was just like, okay, well, what's the worst case scenario? Uh, or 
do you think I really care about your outfit? Is that, does that seem rational to you? And you might check in with them and just say, no, I, I've never judged your outfit. I've, I've never judged your face negatively. I've never judged your hat negatively. And I've never judged your conversation style negatively. You're totally fine here. There's, there's nothing strange about you at all. Sometimes you get a little nervous, but a lot of people get nervous. There's nothing wrong with that. So you're trying to correct for a lifetime of negative automatic thoughts or unhelpful or irrational automatic thoughts. That's cognitive therapy. It's also kind of narrative therapy. Sometimes it's hard to see those two as similar, but they often are in my mind. And of course, Boeanian therapy in terms of differentiation. Also, emotional awareness, getting to know their emotions. As I was talking about earlier, a lot of people with avoidant personality have learned to avoid their emotions altogether. And so they're, and they often will lack a self because they weren't given a chance to develop it or get in touch with it when they were young. And so they might not know their emotional state very well. And knowing your emotional state is very important to being a happy human being. Also, getting to know their attachment reactivity awareness. Their, uh, they might get particularly paranoid about judgment from other people when they feel their attachment needs are being threatened in some way. And so there would be a lot of talk about that. And there might be some awareness around their own needs, getting in touch with who they are as a person, getting in touch with themselves, getting a sense of self, developing that. So all these things can take a long time, by the way. Okay, so that's awareness. A lot of things involved in self-awareness and self-acceptance. The number two th component to good therapy with any personality disorder is corrective experiences. So when I talked earlier about the maladaptive schemas, so deep down, they will have at least some of the following maladaptive schemas, these deep, deeply held belief systems that people are going to abandon me, people are going to hurt me, people aren't going to give me emotional uh, help, I'm defective, I am socially isolated from groups, groups don't want me, I'm incompetent, I'm, I'm vulnerable to things happening, you know, the world is scary, I'm a failure, I'm always going to be a failure, I have to subjugate myself to other people to get along, and I have to control my emotions to survive in the world. And so through the therapeutic relationship, the therapist identifies which schemas are at play and does, you know, engineers the relationship between therapist and client so that there can be corrective experiences. For example, if, if you had a client and she had avoidant personality and she, because she was abused growing up, she has a schema that other people are, to, are going to hurt her eventually. And whenever she comes into therapy, she has a lot of countertransference of, or she has a lot of transference of fear that the therapist is going to hurt her somehow. She, and she's really, you know, uptight about that. And so over time, the therapist provides a secure attachment, but might also just directly talk about that. So how are you feeling today about me? Well, to tell you the truth, Doc, I'm worried you're gonna. I'm worried you're gonna hurt me. I'm worried you're gonna say something that's gonna hurt my feelings. Okay. So I want to tell you that I don't have a single hostile bone in my body about you. I only want to be compassionate. I only have compassion for you. I don't have any impulse to hurt you or to abuse you. You rinse and repeat that over years of therapy. 
And through that experience, it corrects for the experience that this woman had when she was a child. The child was abused, and the therapist provides a different experience that doesn't involve abuse, but involves the opposite, which is compassion, attunement, security, this kind of thing. So this is where the art of therapy comes in. You know, I could say to people, and I do, my trainees and supervisees, provide a corrective experience. But what does that mean exactly? You have to know what sort of corrective experience do you have to give? How do you enhance the relationship in a way that really intensifies that corrective experience? You can provide a correct, you can provide a corrective experience by just being a secure person who's supportive and listening. But it's so much faster, the therapy is so much faster when you can really target these particular schemas. And this is when people in therapy move toward what we call earned security versus continuous security. For those, for those people who were raised well, they have what we call continuous secure attachment. But for those who didn't, they might enter therapy with an insecure attachment style and through the security of that attachment between therapist and client, they have what we call earned security over time. And then they no longer have insecure attachment styles and they might no longer have avoidant personality. Also, there's a lot of transference processing. As the client uh, thinks about and discloses to the therapist uh, what they're feeling and thinking about the therapist, then you process that in therapy. Also, exposure therapy, which is uh, behavioral therapy. And I'm categorizing this in a corrective experience because I consider it to be a corrective experience. So the person with avoidant personality has a tremendous amount of fear about judgment. And one of the things that you can do for people, depends, is you can help them to be habituated to criticism or at least to the um, risk of criticism. So one thing that you can do in therapy is you can say, okay, next therapy session, and you would do this maybe years into therapy, Say, next session, what I want you to do is I want you to come in and dress in the dumbest outfit you could possibly put on, something that you know I am going to ridicule. Okay, can you do that? Okay. So they come in, they're in a ridiculous outfit, and they're scared. They're like, oh my God, I'm going to get ridiculed. And then you as a therapist, you look at the outfit and you go, yeah, that outfit is pretty dumb. And if I saw you walking down the street in that outfit, I might think, wow, that person has no fashion sense. Honestly, that is like a really, really bad outfit. Okay, client, how do you feel? Well, it doesn't feel good. It, but is it as disastrous, client, as you thought it was going to be? Well, the client's probably going to be like, well, no, actually. <laughs> it, I, th- I had it all built up in my mind that wearing a stupid outfit would be, and I would be criticized by you internally, or at worst, externally, where you tell me, And somehow it all felt like the whole world was going to fall apart because of it. But as you criticize my outfit, I'm just like, who cares? So that's exposure. There's a a lot of different – that's not exact exposure. (laughs) Exposure is when you do it over time, that kind of thing. But I hope you get my point is that you want to have experiential habituation to the things that they're afraid of, um, to criticism. Another exposure would be that – you actually talk about it with them, but they have assignments where 
they actually will take risks ev- like every day. They just go to the grocery store when it's busy and as long as they can tolerate it. And this is why exposure therapy has to be overseen by a, a expert exposure therapist. And the client goes into the grocery store, walks around for an hour, and habituates themselves to the possibility of being criticized. And this is something that you could do. Another part of good avoidant personality disorder treatment is helping clients to become more vulnerable. One of the best things that avoidant people can do is to learn how to be vulnerable. So they talk with their spouse because, as I was saying earlier, if you have avoidant personality, you can sometimes be very scared of your own spouse. And that can cause you to be cold and aloof with them. And so instead of pulling away from them all the time, some of the time you can lean in and be vulnerable and say to your spouse, right now, I want to crawl into a hole and die. I am so scared right now of your judgment and of you criticizing me. Can you please reassure me that you love me and that you're not going to criticize me and that you don't think I'm stupid or awkward or not good enough. Could you tell me that, please? That vulnerability provides an opportunity, one, just for compassion for the self to say such things, but also gives the other person a chance to provide a corrective experience for you. Now, research by Svartberg and McCullough in 2010 found that after 24 months of treatment, long-term treatment, there has been a 31% remission rate, meaning that 31% of clients with avoidant personality after two years won't meet criteria for avoidant personality disorder anymore. That's quite a bit. Some people might be thinking, well, that's a really low percentage of success. But when we're talking about personality disorders, it's pretty good. And what about five years of treatment? And what about treatment with people who really know what they're doing? (laughs) So there's a lot of optimism to it, I think. So like I said, we have awareness and we have corrective experiences, which are and the awareness component is quite elaborate, and the corrective experience is quite elaborate. And the third component is just practical skills development, social skills training, advice regarding building secure relationships, that kind of thing. Now, a lot of you might be imagining, well, this is individual therapy, right? No, you can absolutely do this therapy with couples, in families, in group therapy. Group therapy makes a lot of sense, right? Because the person is going to be kind of worried about judgment from other people. And when you're in a group, say everyone in the group has avoidant personality, they can uh, get validation from each other and also check in with each other just like so – I was terrified everyone was going to make fun of my face because I have a pimple, is, you know, and everyone around them is like, I don't care if you have a pimple because I know you're a great person. And yes, you have a pimple and I don't care, but I know you and that's the foundation of my affinity to, towards you is your personality and your compassion. You know, So group therapy could be great, right? But also couple and family therapy. If you have avoidant personality and, you're, and you come in with your spouse, imagine the kind of corrective experiences you could, you could have. And this is the beauty of, I specialize in couples therapy, about half my couples, half of my clients are couples, half are individual adults. And it's such a wonderful thing for me to help the couple to have compassion for each other. A lot of times with personality disorders, there's a lot of misunderstandings 
and a lot of hurt and pain between the two people. As I was talking about earlier, spouses of people with avoidant personality will feel distance and will feel rejected and will feel shut out. And that can really hurt them and can lead to a lot of conflict. But in couples therapy, I can help the spouse understand where the, where the avoidant personality person is coming from and help to correct for that so that they can bond more and have those corrective experiences that involve each other and not me because they can take those corrective experiences and build on them outside of therapy. So that comes to an end of my brief overview of general personality disorder treatment, really. But I don't want to give the impression at all, even to you clinicians out there, that I have fully encapsulated how to treat avoidant personality disorder. In order to treat avoidant personality disorder well, it, w- it requires years of training and consultation and supervision and observation on such issues, complex issues, as countertransference management and awareness, rupture repair, true empathy, and really getting that across, true compassion, true positive regard, corrective experiences, how to pace the therapy given where you're at, how to know the stage of change how to work with transference, even when it becomes negative, how to use self-disclosure effectively, how to do exposure therapy, that's pretty complicated, how to tailor the treatment to where the client is at given the particular week, how to build a working alliance, phenomenological listening, true assessment, because it, it you know, just to detect avoidant personality, you have to be good at assessing it, and they probably have other issues as well. You also have to know what to tackle and when, maybe... Uh, For a few months, they just want to talk about something else, and that's what you need to be doing. So these are – and and the list goes on and on and on. These are extremely complicated things, and I can't put it into words how to do that with any personality disorder, let alone avoidant. But I'm just giving the the general overview of awareness, which involves a lot of education, a lot of – uh, awareness, a lot of cognitive therapy, corrective experiences, which involve a lot of uh, interpersonal psychodynamic therapy, long-term therapy between client and therapist, where the client really uh, uses the the compassion and the love and the attachment of the therapy to correct for what went wrong when they were young. And, of course, just practical skills and development, social skills, and just getting used to relationships because they might have a lifetime of avoiding them, right? All righty. Well, that does it for that deep dive. I believe I went for four hours. I thought I would go for shorter than that, but I did not. (laughs) People out there, let me know what you think. I'm very curious. Um, What other areas of loneliness should I go into? If you have thoughts on avoidant personality, let me know. If, if you have people in your life, let me know what you think. As I always say, I can't diagnose from afar, so if you send me emails asking me to diagnose people, I really can't do that. Um, do you have stories of social Because I'm going to be doing episodes on social anxiety, schizoids, schizotypal, incels, uh, Seattle freeze, autism spectrum, ADHD, Avoiding attachment. Are you just lonely? Uh, you know, send in your accounts, and I will in, in, include them in my uh, preparation for those episodes. And everyone out there, let's go through this journey together. 
Let's not do it alone. And at the end of this series on loneliness, let's see if we can reduce loneliness in the world for ourselves and for other people. Why? Because we all deserve that, do we not?